and welcome, welcome, welcome. This is another episode of Daring Dialogues. I am your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you've been having a great and wonderful day. If you are joining us by podcast, I want to say welcome and thank you for tuning in. Tonight, we are going to be focusing specifically on the artists of the Harlem Renaissance. And we're going to be looking tonight at their artwork. So if you are listening by audio, you can always check this broadcast out um, on our IG to see the visuals. Our IG is Daring Dialogues, and you can look for episode 68 if you want to catch the visual explanation and the visual pieces that we'll be showing on tonight. So good evening to everyone coming in. Good evening to those of you who will catch the replay. Now, if you don't know anything about me, let me give you a little bit about my uh, educational background. So I am a graduate of Florida State University and I majored in, my degree is in art education with an emphasis on graphic design and psychology of the African-American. So when I speak tonight, I am not just speaking from a place of um, just this is what I think, (laughs) but I am also speaking from a place as a professional um, and as someone who has been a lifelong artist since I was nine years old to go on to um, professionally pursue a degree in the arts. I am an art educator. I have been one for almost 22 years now. And I teach art professionally to students and adults around the country. That all being said, (laughs) I want to jump into this book tonight called Black Refractions, the Studio Museum in Harlem. I was actually at the bookstore looking for another book when I just stumbled upon this uh, incredible find, namely because in one of our other broadcasts, we have been talking about the Harlem Renaissance and we have been discussing, right, um, what was the Harlem Renaissance. And in this particular book, what was the Harlem Renaissance, there was a section on the artists of the, of the Harlem Renaissance. And so to go into the bookstore and be looking for a particular book and actually happen upon literally this whole visual collection of some of the very artists that we had just talked about, I was like, yeah, this is one of those books that you want to, um, if you are a collector, um, if you are a, a librarian, if you are a book lover, if you have a personal library, this is one of those books that you would want to get for your personal library. Um, Yes, you could probably check it out from the local, your public library if you cannot um, afford to get it. But I would definitely say if you can afford to get it, it is something that you would want in your personal library. So yes, I am putting a plug in for this book. I am, it is not sponsored. They are not paying me to plug it. It is just an absolute treasure. It's a fine. And so... We're going to just dig in. I'll read a little bit of the introduction to give you an idea of what this book contains. And then we'll talk about the individual artists that I want to share with you on tonight. There are quite a few in this book. So here we go. 
This is from Pauline Willis, Director and CEO of the American Federation of Arts. She has this to say. The American Federation of Arts is proud to present Black Refractions, highlights from the Studio Museum in Harlem in collaboration with our colleagues at the museum. The exhibition features a selection of works by artists of African descent from the museum's permanent collection, bringing the spirit of the museum to audiences across the United States. With over 100 pieces by artists such as Romare Bearden, Elizabeth Catlett, Barclay Hendricks, Chris Ophelia and Michelaine Thomas, among others, this expi exhibition will contribute significantly to the national dialogue about art by artists of African descent. The AFA is honored to ensure the reach of this timely celebration of the Studio Museum and of Black culture. So um, I'm going to give you part of the foreword by Thelma Golden, who is the director and chief curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem. So if you live in Harlem, if you are in New York, if you are planning to go to New York, um, you can visit the Studio Museum in Harlem and check out these pieces in person. As they said, this is from the permanent collection. And so this is a great way to get to Harlem before you get to Harlem. Here we go. Half a century ago, the Studio Museum in Harlem was founded by a dynamic group of artists, community activists, and philanthropists who sought to create space for artists of African descent and to provide a platform for critical dialogue about their work. They chose to cite this revolutionary arts institution in Harlem, the historical center of Black cultural innovation in the United States. Initially, the Studio Museum was not a collecting institution, the founder's goal was simply to give voice to artists whose work was not being shown at other major institutions. Artists who, as Dr. Maury Schmidt Campbell, former executive director said, these artists galvanized by the events of the civil rights movement felt compelled to respond with complex narratives and symbolic imagery that attempted to come to grips with the ideas of the era. Almost immediately, the need <clears throat> and desire to preserve culture through the act of collecting became clear. And the museum began to serve as a custodian for artwork by artists of African descent and a repository for the social and cultural histories they tell. The studio museum's exhibitions are deeply influenced by our location in Harlem. The same is true of our collection, which is shown, studied and stored in the heart of a neighborhood that both sees itself reflected in the artworks we steward and celebrates this very act of preservation. Today, I am pleased and excited that the collection has the opportunity to travel our partner to partner institutions throughout the country. As we prepare to create a new facility in Harlem, it is a crucial time for the collection to be out in the world where new audiences can engage with these evocative and important works of art. Black Refractions highlights from the Studio Museum in Harlem presents in this book over 100 works from the museum's permanent collection, which includes more than 2,000 paintings, sculptures, watercolors, drawings, pastels, prints, photographs, mixed media works, and installations dating from the 19th century up to the present. The museum's collection also reflects our history, including our many incredible patrons throughout the years. 
It comprises gifts from artists, donations from supporters, and purchases by our acquisition committee. The collection includes works featured in landmark exhibitions and those created in the studios of our many artists in residence. Black Refractions re represents the true diversity of our collection, as well as the enduring power of art being made by artists of African descent. I am proud to bring these works to visitors around the country with the incredible collaboration of the American Federation of Arts. This show would not have been possible without the support and enthusiasm of our colleagues at the participating venues. Fry Museum, Fry Art Museum, Seattle, Washington, Gibbs Museum of Art, Charleston, South Carolina, Kalamazoo Institute of Arts, Michigan, Museum of African Diaspora, San Francisco, Smith College Museum of Art, Northampton, Massachusetts, and the Utah Museum of Fine Arts in Salt Lake City. We at the Studio Museum appreciate their careful presentation of the work that we are tremendously honored and privileged to care for. So, ladies and gentlemen, let us begin by showing you an image of the Studio Museum in Harlem where it is um, currently located and has been renovated, but they are getting, looks like they are getting ready for yet possibly another um, museum. So here is the original. All right. And it is located at 144 West 125th Street. It was formerly the New York Bank for Savings. The building was renovated by J. Max Bond Jr. and his firm, Bond Rider Associates, and was first occupied by the museum on June 15, 1982. So the very first uh, artist that we're going to take a look at is one of my favorite artists. His name is Romare Bearden. And this has, let's see, one, two, three, four of his pieces in here. Born in 1911 in Charlotte, North Carolina, passing away in 1988 in New York City. To encounter the work of Bearden, a modernist artist, is to experience a new, destabilized way of seeing. His visually and symbolically layered paintings, collages, and prints draw from a broad range of intellectual and scholarly interests, including literature, music, mathematics, and education. His twin dedication to the formal techniques of his craft and the visualization of the richness of black life in the United States led him to innovate a new style of portraiture, one that extensively explores and transfigures its object. Specifically, Bearden's works combine early Cubist techniques with aspects of Byzantine mosaics, 17th century Dutch master paintings, traditional Chinese landscape paintings, and Mexican murals. The results are two-dimensional works that reveal an exploration of beauty through each physically layered composition. Bearden often traveled between New York, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania in his youth, developing an understanding of Black culture across the United States. During his travels and study in Europe in the 1940s, he began to create his own strict and classical artistic style and developed a passion for painting, the life of his people as he knew it, as passionately and dispassionately as Bruegel painted the life of the people of his day. 
Starting in the 1950s, like Pablo Picasso, Barnett Newman, and other post-war artists, Bearden embraced an abstract approach to representation as a means of depicting the fragmented reality of humanity as experienced during war. It was not until the 1960s that he adopted his signature collages for their potential to deconstruct, fragment, improvise, and reconstruct in a manner similar to the techniques of jazz musicians. Works like The Farmer incorporate photographic collage and painted elements to provide a style that is, that is emblematic of the subject. And using structural elements to stylize his depiction of scenes, Bearden caught both the University of Harlem life and the Harlemness of the national human predicament. Bearden's experiments in distorting size and proportion, fracturing images, styling, colorization, not only show his own unique control of space, structure, color, and symbolism, but also a balanced mastery of the techniques of illusion and revelation. Rarely drawing from any photographic portraits, he would often build faces from parts of African masks, animal eyes, and vegetation, extending the meaning of each object from the specific to the universal. Furthermore, his strategic combination of several mediums on one surface also demonstrates an understanding of materials, especially the use of paper. Equal to Bearden's commitment to painting was his dedication to his community, especially emerging artists. Together with his wife, artist and critic Nanette Bearden, he cemented his lifelong support by founding the Romare Bearden Foundation. He has extensively influenced contemporary artists, a connection that was explored in the studio museums, the Bearden Project by um, from 2011 to 2012. So this is one of his pieces here entitled Prelude to a Farewell. And if you notice, it is um, several layers, as they said, it's part collage, part painting, and he really deals with a sort of stylized realism, but through the medium of collage and painting. Here are some of his other pieces. This one is called, uh, the one by itself is called Jammin' at the Savoy. And then there's one entitled Woman with Flower. And then the one mentioned in the writing entitled The Farmer. I really like his piece Jammin' at the Savoy. Again, very stylized figures, but also full of color and action. You can almost kind of sense the energy of the players and the music that's going forth. Romare Bearden. Moving on to the next artist for tonight. And that is Lois Malou Jones. Lois was born in 1905 in Boston, Massachusetts, and she passed away in 1998 in Washington, D.C. Jones's still life with a portrait uses the traditional post-impressionist still life to send a critical message about the status of Black artists. 
In the foreground is a table with fruit and an iconic capital placed on a carefully draped sheet. In the middle ground, partially behind the capital, but larger than the other elements on the table, is an unframed portrait of a young woman of African descent. Shown in a three-quarter view, the woman is depicted with features that look as if they might have been studied from a specific person. Jones was, after all, known for her portraiture, and long, dark hair pinned back on the woman with a pink tropical flower. In this still life, executed with an eye toward detail, space, and color, Jones did her best to invoke the work of post-impressionist painter Paul Cezanne. By the time she painted this still life in 1944, Jones had become known as a talented academic painter. She studied art at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, and the Academy Julian in Paris. Her early paintings focused primarily on French landscapes. In the early 1940s, Joan met Alan Locke, a philosopher who was integral to the Harlem Renaissance. Locke persuaded Jones to address the Black experience in her work. Though she continued to paint landscapes, it was at this point that Jones began to explore new subject matter. Her portraits and academic paintings of African-American subjects like mob victim, meditation, grew great, great critical attention. To include one such portrait in this still life is one way Jones answered Locke's call. It was relatively rare to see images of modern black women in Western art during the mid 20th century, let alone to see such an image within a still life by a contemporary black artist. This portrait, unframed and perhaps unfinished, was typical of Jones's work at the time and was a way for her to announce her artistic production. By making it larger than and as well rendered as the still life elements, Jones called attention to the primacy of the portrait within the image. The portrait, not the classical capital or the still life of fruit, is the focal point of this work. By highlighting this detailed portrait, Jones stressed her skills as a painter and aligned her own artistic production with previous Western traditions, those that have for so long ignored the artistic contributions of Black and of female artists. So this traditional uh, still life here, if you look at the time period, I would say of the Renaissance, um, possibly Baroque, they had something called the breakfast piece. And basically it was kind of like eating something or eating breakfast and leaving everything unfinished on the table. And then the artist would paint what that would look like. Her style to me is very similar to that. But as the uh, critic says, even though she has this still life happening in the foreground, the emphasis is really on the black woman and how the black woman symbolically is making her entrance into this world that has been mainly male and white. Now there's an interesting piece here down in the corner um, that as they said is called victim, mob victim meditation. And I wanna try to bring it as close as I possibly can because this is really, really powerful. I'll probably find it online and see if I can 
uh, posted to my social media page. But if you take a look at that image, she's actually painting what looks like a meditation moment before a black man is lynched. Not, definitely not the painting subject that was common back then, but it was an important historical thing to mark. Again, the artist is Lois Malou Jones. We're moving on now to my second favorite artist of the Harlem Renaissance period, and his name is Jacob Lawrence. Jacob Lawrence was born in 1917 in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and he passed in 2000 in Seattle, Washington. Lawrence achieved almost overnight acclaim when his series, The Migration of the Negro, was shown at New York's Downtown Gallery in 1941. The first African-American artist to be represented by a major commercial gallery, he made work that defied categorization. In an era marked by the rise of the abstract, Lawrence created epic narratives that boldly portray African-American history and experiences. He had the ability to simplify his subject matter to abstract forms while conveying social and philosophical themes with great power. When Lawrence was a child in 1930, his family moved to Harlem. There he received his artistic training, first in an after-school program and later at the Harlem Art Workshop. He studied under leading Harlem Renaissance artists, Charles Alston and Augusta Savage, and interacted with such notable figures as writers Langston Hughes and Alan Locke, as well as artists Romare Bearden and Robert Blackburn. Combining formal and informal training, Lawrence found his distinctive artistic direction and emerged as one of 20th century's most influential painters. The Architect was created in 1959 at mid-career. Lawrence was well known for his narrative cycles on the lives of abolitionists like John Brown, Frederick Douglass, and Harriet Tubman, as well as for his migration series. In the 1950s, however, Lawrence primarily focused on standalone paintings and depicting scenes from everyday life. Subjects range from streetscapes and leisure activities to religious scenes and depictions of labor. The architect connects Lawrence's enduring interest in labor and construction. He first explored the theme in the 1940s with several paintings of cabinet makers. In 1968, he began an in-depth exploration of the subject with his Builders painting series. These paintings convey a message of hope and progress through the construction of buildings and the improvement of lives. Though the architect predates this body of work, it conveys the same message. With arms outstretched at his drafting table, the architect orchestrates a scene of growth and progress for the community. He sees before him. The painting also carries religious undertones with steel construction beams evoking crosses punctuating the skyline, perhaps evoking a notion of salvation through building a better world. And this is the piece that they are referring to called The Architect. Reminds me of my husband, The Architect. <laughs> 
Again, this piece is by Jacob Lawrence. All right. Our next artist for tonight, again, an artist that I really love. Um, I first came across her work through children's books and literature, um, which kind of led me to all of her pieces, but I was exposed to her through, um, through children's books and reading for education. And her name is Faith Ringgold. Faith Ringgold was born in 1930 in New York City, and she lives and works in Inglewood, New Jersey. A year after the Harlem riot of 1935, Duke Ellington wrote Echoes of Harlem. The moody jazz blues composition laments the end of the Harlem Renaissance, a time when the New York City neighborhood vibrated with hope and creative production. In 1980, Ringgold reclaimed that title presenting a new vibrant black community on a painted and stitched cotton quilt. Ringgold grew up in Harlem during the Great Depression, but life was tough. The power of local activism to effect change and unite community informed her sense of being, as did the neighborhood's legacy of many great black thinkers, writers, and artists. The black arts movement of the 1960s and 70s re-energized Harlem and Ringo participated in civil rights and feminist activism, organizing protests demanding that the work of black artists be shown at the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Museum of Modern Art, which were both in New York City. Yet the black arts movement, second wave feminism and the art world in general, systematically marginalized black women. In response, Faith Ringgold co-founded Where We At, Black Women Artists, a collective of women who were interested in exploring issues of their own representation, their own aesthetics and empowerment. The themes of race and gender have remained dominant in her work. Echoes of Harlem, for example, showcases a range of popular looks, including curls, waves, braids, beards, hoops, and bright lips that attest to a rejection of a white standard of beauty. Echoes of Harlem represents a major development for the artist. In the 1970s, she collaborated with her mother, Willie Posey, a well-known couturier in Harlem, to make fabric masks, stuffed figures, and unstretched paintings with tile borders inspired by a Tibetan tile painting. An extension of that practice, Echoes of Harlem, her quilted piece, is her last collaboration with her mother, and Ringgold's first quilt. Ringgold is perhaps best known as a maker of story quilts, figurative works that incorporate written narratives in a form that celebrates both the creative output of enslaved African-Americans and traditional women's work through the quilt. This early quilt is the immediate precursor to that form. Its gridded composition, emphasis on figure, and vibrant fabrics informed her first story quilt, Who's Afraid of Aunt Jemima, created in 1983. This one incorporates three of the four fabrics that compose Echoes of Harlem. Like jazz improvisation structure with repeating musical patterns, this quilt unifies four distinct and busy fabrics in a recurring rhythm that frames 30 faces of dark-skinned men and women. Unique facial features like moles and wrinkles 
suggests that these figures could be portraits of actual people, but viewed as a whole, the quilt reads like a portrait of irrepressible Harlem, expressing Ringo's pride in the resilient strength and creativity of her community. Again, this piece is called Echoes of Harlem, created in 1980. It is a quilt that is hand-painted cotton. And here is that piece. Hand-painted. And our final artist that we're going to look at tonight from this book is another one of my artists that inspire me. Her name is Alma Thomas. There are some pieces of Alma Thomas's work located in the um, Museum of African American History and Culture here in Washington, D.C. Um, and you can visit those if you are in this area. But Alma Thomas is an abstract artist. She was born in 1891 in Columbus, Georgia, and she passed away in 1978 in Washington, D.C. Born in Georgia, Thomas moved with her family as a teenager to Washington, D.C., where she could live and work for the rest of her life. She spent much of her life as a junior high school art teacher. Always active as a maker and involved in the D.C. art world, Thomas focused her energies on her artistic career after retirement. Less concerned about producing works that responded to current events or fit what others were doing, Thomas focused on creating paintings that celebrated beauty and happiness, innovating her own unique style. The title she gave her works provide insights into her intentions and interests. Paintings like Splashdown of Apollo 13 and Mars Dust reveal her fascination with space exploration and speak to how this dramatic societal shift influenced her work. As Thomas put it, she was born at the end of the 19th century, horse and buggy days, and experienced the changes of the 20th century machine and space age. Paintings like Forsythia Glow and Wind Dancing with Spring Flowers speak to Thomas's interest in creating abstract representations of her own garden. It was in her works on paper that the artist experimented with color combinations line thickness and pattern. Many of her works on paper are untitled. Some appear to be studies and others are finished works. Opus 52 and Space are two such works, both made approximately five years after her retirement around the time of her solo exhibition at Howard University. During this time, Thomas began moving away from figures toward abstraction. These works developed during this transitional period in her career show the stages of her instantly recognizable, bold, gestural, abstract style. So these are her pieces. I'll bring the smaller one up close first. This one is entitled Mars Dust. And then these are her other abstract pieces here. Now this book does not contain some of her other work, but I really do like some of her other abstract pieces that focus more on the sphere and the circle and repeating colors and shapes.
So those are the people I wanted to show you on tonight. Tomorrow we're going to pick back up with our Fierce 44. And I have one more artist to share from this book who is a photographer. And we're going to take a look at his work that you can also find his collections online now. And that is James Vanderzee. All right. If you have been listening by audio, I want to thank you for tuning in tonight. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you will take time to look up these artists and check out their works. There are quite a few of them online for view and exploration. Until tomorrow, take care and God bless.